From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, May 30th. I'm Marco Werman. U.N. diplomats face bleak choices as more bodies turn up in Syria. We'll have the latest from U.N. headquarters. Also today, an Islamic private high school in Silicon Valley. You are a Muslim, you are American, and you need to be proud of both, and you need to be able to bring those two together. And later, speaking Faroese. There was a radio show with a guy called The Word Guy, and people would send him requests, things like, how do I say computer? Those stories coming. First, the news. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. There were more bodies in Syria today. United Nations observers said they found 13 people bound and shot in the east of the country. That comes just days after the massacre of about 100 people in the town of Hula. Many of them were children. Today, the deputy to Special Envoy Kofi Annan told the Security Council that the killings in Syria won't end without a political negotiation between the government and the opposition. About 10 countries, including the U.S., have expelled Syrian diplomats in protest over the massacre. And the U.N. Human Rights Council has scheduled an emergency meeting for Friday. There's an urgent sense that the international community has to do something, but there's no consensus on what. Colm Lynch is U.N. correspondent for The Washington Post. Colm Annan's deputy also said today that he and Annan now doubt Assad's commitment to the peace plan. But what are the alternatives? Well, the, the Security Council met, and after the briefing by Annan's deputy, the Security Council tried to explore ways that they can respond. Are there ways that they can apply more pressure on the government? Are there ways that they can strengthen the capacity of the UN monitors? And, you know, by the end of the conversation, it was becoming quite clear that any steps to increase pressure on the regime were not going to get very far in the council. Uh, there was opposition to sanctions. The Russians in particular, there was concerns about proposals from some of the Western countries to adopt what they call a Chapter 7 resolution. Those are the kinds of resolutions that are often enforced through the threat of sanctions or even possibly military force. Now, Kofi Annan told Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, that his country is at the tipping point. But the violence in Syria is so much worse than, say, the tipping point at Benghazi in Libya last year, which prompted the world to intervene in that country. France has called again for military intervention in Syria. Russia is still holding out. How can the rest of the international community open up some distance between Bashar al-Assad and Moscow? Well, I think that they're trying to use the Hula massacre as a vehicle for doing that. I mean, you have seen the Russians, you know, acknowledging, and I think they're largely doing this because of the fact that there are monitors on the ground, but acknowledging that the government bears the greatest responsibility for what happened there. But they've also tried to sort of convey 
this kind of lack of clarity about events on the ground. So there, there is still an effort by the Russians to provide some political cover for the Syrians and also to sort of uh, convey this narrative that this is a really messy situation. It's not just the Syrian government, that there are armed opposition people on one side that are equally responsible for what's going on there. But it seems that the sort of the initial reporting for the UN shows fairly clear picture that it was uh, government and pro-government militia that, that bore greatest responsibility for this awful massacre. Humanitarian intervention in Syria is being very softly peddled right now. Um, but, but today, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Susan Rice, uh, warned the Security Council that the most probable scenario in Syria was a further escalation of the conflict with it spreading to other countries in the region. Would that warning possibly uh, provide for some kind of military intervention to prevent that from happening? Well, I think that there's not a, a clear scenario, um, as you saw, or a willingness, as you saw in Libya, to, to intervene militarily, particularly by countries that have the wherewithal to do it. So uh, that's kind of on the agenda. I mean, the United States is talking about ratcheting up pressure, possible sanctions. But, you know, they acknowledge, and Susan Rice acknowledged, that the council is still deeply divided. It's not clear that they can cobble together enough of a majority and overcome a Russian veto in the council to um, to significantly step up pressure on the government. It, it kind of feels like there's not much outrage. And when you see the pictures and videos of the dead children uh, in Hula last Friday, I mean, it's just horrific. What, what is the tone and temper at the UN right now? I mean, ha- have, have diplomats seen these pictures and videos? Well, they have. And, and everybody, you know, is using the language of they're appalled, they're outraged. I mean, I think what's notable is that you know, if you go back a few months before the Annan plan started, um, all these kind of European and, you know, Western capitals, the United States, they were all talking about the need to overthrow, or not to overthrow, but, but to drive President Assad from power. And I think that most Western governments have basically hid behind the UN mediation, uh, the Kofi Annan's mediation, as a way of not having to address the very difficult decisions about what to do. There, there has been new talk of a Yemen option, like the deal which led to the departure of uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, the dictator of Yemen, earlier this year, a deal promising immunity and safe haven for the regime's leaders in exchange for relinquishing power. Is that realistic? And who's actually pushing that idea? I, I don't think it's realistic. And I don't think that, you know, the Syrians have shown any inclination or interest in doing this. I mean, I think that, you know, for Assad and, and for, you know, the kind of elite um, group, the Alawites around him, I think that they see this as a kind of, you know, an existential threat. Uh, you know, maybe Assad could leave and he would have immunity, but there's a big, you know, population of people who probably wouldn't. They seem to be sending no signs that they're willing to go. And quite the opposite, I get the sense that President Assad, and you know, is fairly confident that he's going to be able to survive this. Colm Lynch, UN correspondent for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Marco. The case of a Pakistani doctor accused of aiding the CIA has taken a bizarre twist. Shaquille Afridi was a physician who held fake vaccine trials to help the CIA track down Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad. This month, Afridi was sentenced to 33 years in prison for treason. That happened in a secret trial. Pakistani officials said the treason charges stemmed from Afridi's links to the CIA. But now the court's full judgment has been released, and the documents say Afridi was jailed for aiding a banned Pakistani militant group, not for helping the CIA. Afridi's brother Jamil says the doctor is being scapegoated, and he asks, what kind of justice is this? They told all the family members not to say anything to the media. 
or it could endanger Dr. Afridi. But now he has been sentenced. We cannot be silent. We have to ask for justice. Some observers say the release of the court record might be Pakistan's attempt to ease troubled relations with the United States. They say Pakistan can now claim it's cracking down on domestic militancy and easy outcry in the U.S. over Afridi's imprisonment. Washington considers Afridi a hero. Still, the whole case remains confusing, even to Afridi's lawyers. One of them said he saw the verdict for the first time today, and he's still baffled. Now, Pakistan has a reputation for its Islamic religious schools. Critics say they teach an extremist ideology. Private Islamic schools are much less common in the U.S., but the numbers here are growing and not without controversy. Critics contend these schools are cocoons raising Muslim outsiders. But supporters say the Islamic schools in America promote better integration into U.S. culture while maintaining religious traditions. Reporter Monica Campbell recently visited a tiny Islamic high school in the Silicon Valley. In California, where high schools can house thousands of students, step inside a Verawais Institute, perhaps one of the state's smallest high schools. This is our reception. <laughs> It'll be our space for a couple of years until we grow out of it. That's Reem Bilbezi, the principal of this tiny private Islamic high school in Fremont, just south of San Francisco, and the first of its kind in the area. One of the things we stand for in this school is you are a Muslim, you are American, and you need to be proud of both, and you need to be able to, to bring those two together. Like so much in Silicon Valley, it's a startup. Just nine students total, its inaugural freshman class. It's even in an office park, an odd yet affordable location. At least 250 Islamic schools like this exist in the U.S., and growth's been quick in recent years. Bilbezi says her school combines academic and devotional rigor. The school is mostly one big airy room. There are prayer rugs, and the book collection ranges from To Kill a Mockingbird and the autobiography of Malcolm X to the Quran and Dave Eggers' Zaytun about a Syrian immigrant and Hurricane Katrina. The students' origins are also diverse, with parents from Afghanistan, Fiji, India, and Pakistan. All of this appealed to Sonia Maharaj. She's 13, could have attended a top high school, but chose the Verawais Institute. For high school, I really wanted an experience that I could learn from and that I wasn't just another person, just another person that you see in the hallway. I was like, I meant something to somebody. She's also fine with the dress code, which requires a headscarf. Sonia's mom, Iram Maharaj, who's from Pakistan, did get pushback from her family. I have heard from my sister who has said, you know, you're, you're sort of um, putting her in a bubble. But I haven't felt that with her because I feel that they're volunteering. They have speakers coming in almost every week. So I feel that she gets exposed to, you know, so many different groups of people. Meantime, students are pushed academically and groomed as leaders. We want to give a speech about a topic that is socially significant. Significant to you as Averroes students, significant to you as Californians, significant to you as Americans, significant to you as Muslims. That's teacher Zaki Hassan. I do feel like this school has the opportunity to really blaze a trail and show that this is what it means to have an Islamic school. But Islamic schools can be branded as extreme, isolationist, and on occasion they're met with intolerance. 
Such prejudice will continue, says Charles Hirschkin, a scholar of religion at the University of California at Berkeley. I think many people don't really know how to think about those schools, whether this is sort of the intrusion of some sort of dangerous sleeper cell of some kind into American society, because much of the popular media paints that image of Muslim groups in the United States. My name is Idris Meskinyar. I'm 15 years old. I was born and raised in America. I've lived in Egypt, Yemen, and my parents are originally from Afghanistan. And here's one freshman who some critics of the school might fear. I've been traveling. I've been doing religious studies overseas, so this is our number one priority. I believe that we're here for a reason, so God and religion always comes first before everything. And it disturbs Ms. Kenyar when he hears news about the suspicions people have about Muslim students, like when reports came out about the New York police spying on Muslim student groups. He wishes more Americans would see him as a typical teenager and tries to have a tough skin about it. It doesn't really faze me because I'm not always here. I'm, I go out, I'm always outside. I'm always playing basketball. I'm always like walking. I'm always going to the mall. Plus, like he's had to do at public schools, he doesn't have to excuse himself to go pray in the bathroom, kneeling and pressing his head to the floor. Principal Bill Basie, who attended the large public high school, said she would have cherished the school as a teen. Because... Sometimes it's not always outward uh, that you are Muslim, especially if you don't wear the hijab. So how do you kind of feel strong and, and feel confident that it's okay to be that way, but still fit in and have friends and still be considered cool and whatnot? But while Bill Basie is excited to shape what Islamic education can look like in America, the day is far off when her piece of educational turf will not come with a healthy, if not hyper, amount of scrutiny. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in Fremont, California. Want to know what students at Avero Ace Institute are reading? We have a school reading list at theworld.org. Still to come on the program, the bizarre tale of a California accountant who tried to overthrow the government in his native Cambodia on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Vision problems are a special burden for the poor, and they are more likely to affect the poor. An estimated 90 percent of people with visual impairments live in developing countries. In India, some innovative programs are trying to help. We have two stories. In a few minutes, we'll look at how stem cells are reversing some cases of blindness. But first, how superstition can get in the way of treating children with eye problems in India. Here's reporter Jason Struther in New Delhi. In a slum on the west side of Delhi, children help support their families by selling whatever they find in the trash. They pick up things they see on the street, too. But 13-year-old Hakim Ali has a much harder time doing this than other kids. He says he sometimes suddenly goes blind. His vision gets dark and hazy. Hakim Ali is severely cross-eyed. Indian ophthalmologists say it's a condition that afflicts as many as 4% of children here. In fact, Hakim isn't the only one in his family with the condition. Four brothers and sisters suffer from it too. His mother says the family hasn't sought treatment for the children, even though local hospitals provide it for free. She says the family is so focused on trying to make a living that there's just no time to worry about anything else. 
But that may not be the only reason the children haven't been treated. If the child is born with crossed eyes, it is considered to bring good luck to the family. Manesh Kumar is with the international organization Orbis. It supports eye clinics around India that offer corrective surgery for crossed eyes. He says the belief that a cross-eyed child brings good fortune often gets in the way of his organization's efforts. In many communities in India as well as in Nepal, this belief actually, you know, prevents the family or the parents to take the children for medical attention at an early age or maybe even later. And if parents wait too long, it can be too late to correct the child's vision. Suma Ganesh is a pediatric ophthalmologist at Dr. Shroff's Charity Eye Hospital in Delhi. She explains that children with crossed eyes can experience double vision. The brain does not like the double vision. So what the brain does is it suppresses one image. So the child not only loses vision but also loses depth perception. So medical charities are trying to get parents to take the condition seriously. Manesh Kumar of Orbis says he doesn't try to convince families that they're wrong about a child bringing good luck. Instead, he says, his social workers warn parents about the harm that could come from delaying treatment. They say that look at your child right in front of you. He's not able to see now. Maybe in course of time he might become blind. He might lose his eyesight. So as a mother, would you like to see your son blind, moving around helplessly? So they try to play with that kind of an emotion. That has worked in a better way. And that's the appeal Kumar is making today to the family of 13-year-old Hakim Ali in the Delhi slum. Surely, you'd want your son to be able to see well, he tells the boy's mother. Hakim Ali's uncle, Ibrahim, says he'd always thought having an eye condition like this was the result of fate and that it's something his nephew would just have to live with. But the conversation appears to change his mind. He says he feels bad for the boy. He can't ride a bike or lead a normal life because of his eyes. So Ibrahim agrees to take the boy in for treatment. That sounds like good news, but the social workers from the charity say their job isn't finished yet. They say once they leave, parents often change their mind. So the workers will keep calling on Hakim Ali's family until the boy actually shows up at the hospital. For The World, I'm Jason Struther, New Delhi. Blindness can occur suddenly. For some of these victims, stem cells are helping them to see again. The World's Ritu Chatterjee has that story. Ashok Chakravarti remembers the moment he went blind. It was in 2002. He was at work at a chemical plant fixing a leaky pipe. He says the chemical splashed into his eyes. It was sodium hydroxide, caustic soda. It damaged the outermost layer of the eyes, the cornea. Chakravarti is among thousands of Indians who lose their sight in chemical accidents each year. Today, many of those people can see again, thanks to scientists at the L.V. Prasad Eye Institute in Hyderabad. They're using stem cells, not the controversial embryonic stem cells, but adult stem cells. Yeah, you can come in. Inside the lab where the cells are grown, Savitri Madileti shows me two petri dishes. Each dish contains a tiny piece of eye tissue from a patient. One is 15-year-old female and one is 5-year-old male. Both children had accidents with household chemicals and became blind in one eye. What scientists here aim to do is fix the damaged eye with stem cells taken from the good eye. 
In other patients who've suffered damage in both eyes, the stem cells are taken from the eye of a close relative. Now, Madhileti and a team don't isolate the stem cells from the eye tissue. But under the right conditions, those cells start growing on their own. She shows me under a microscope. Can you see these bright cells coming out? The cells look shiny. They are starting to form a thin, transparent layer. This is the new corneal tissue that will be transplanted into the patient's damaged eye. Pathologist Geeta Vimuganti heads the team that grows these stem cells. She says the process is much like gardening. It's akin to putting seeds or a little sapling along with a little bit of a soil or the roots. The stem cells being the seeds or saplings and the rest of the eye tissue, the soil or the roots. Now, Vimukanti's team isn't the first to repair damaged corneas with stem cells. This technique was developed by a group of Italian scientists. But Vimukanti modified that technique and made it simpler and faster. Instead of three to four weeks, we made it 10 days. It's also less expensive, which is important in a hospital that treats all patients, including those who can't afford to pay. Vimukanti and her colleagues have treated hundreds of patients from all over India. One of them is Ashok Chakravarti, the man who lost his sight back in 2002 while fixing a pipe at work. Three months and a few surgeries later, he was able to see again. He says it was like being given a new life. But after several years of normal vision, Chakravarti started having eye problems again. So he's come back to the institute to see the surgeon who spearheaded the stem cell initiative, Virender Sangwan. Uh-huh. Sangwan examines Chakravarti's eyes. He tells Chakravarti that his body has rejected one cornea. That's because he wasn't just given the stem cell transplant. He also received corneal tissue from a dead donor because his injury was especially severe. Surgeon Virendra Sangwan says the stem cell transplant worked just fine, but the corneal graft is starting to fail. That's a normal graft rejection like any other transplant rejection. So we are going to replace that cornea and see if that will work. Many of his patients return with post-surgical complications. Treating them is an ongoing process. But Sangwan says any success is important because when poor people in India go blind, they lose more than their sight. Once you don't have the eyesight, then the society doesn't respect you, and you don't socially not productive, so everybody starts neglecting. And by restoring sight, Sangwan is restoring his patient's self-esteem, and as he puts it, their faith in life. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee, Hyderabad. You can see the stem cells and patients whose sight has been restored at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, Israel is using owls to deal with rodents on farms near Jordan and the West Bank. But for the program to succeed, researchers had to overcome Arab superstitions about the birds. I worked with imams, and uh, some of them been speaking about the owls and the project in the, in the mosque. It started working. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Former Liberian President Charles Taylor was sentenced to 50 years in prison today. Taylor was convicted of war crimes by the Special Court for Sierra Leone in The Hague last month. The judge who delivered the sentence today described Taylor's crimes as among the most heinous in human history. They included murder, rape, and recruitment of child soldiers. The judge said that in return for so-called blood diamonds, Taylor supported rebels in Sierra Leone who carried out atrocities, including the amputation of victims' arms and legs. The court noted that the 64-year-old Taylor has shown no remorse, but he is apparently feeling the weight of the sentence, according to Taylor's brother-in-law, Arthur Say. He and I talked, and today was my first time that I noticed that he was sort of down. Maybe down because he had talked to his wife earlier and he talked about the, the children, the little children that she has to take care of and all these things. Many of Taylor's victims were heartened by today's sentencing. Sierra Leonean Abu Fofana traveled to the Netherlands to be at the landmark trial. Honestly speaking, the sentence, it's a relief. But that doesn't bring all the pains we've gone through. And it gives me a little bit of sleep, and I think I can, I can sleep more better today because there is somebody, Charles Taylor, who has been held responsible and found guilty. In Sierra Leone, some of Taylor's victims watched the sentencing on a live television feed. Ibrahim Tommy also tuned in. He works for the Sierra Leone Center for Accountability and Rule of Law. He hopes the verdict will send a warning to other dictators and heads of state. Heads of state, um, people who are held in positions of trust should be warned that their positions are used basically for the interest um, of their people rather than using it against the interest of their people uh, in the neighboring countries. Despite the verdict and sentencing, Taylor still has his supporters back home in Liberia. Yassi Chun can't forget the cruelty of Pol Pot's rule in Cambodia. He watched the Khmer Rouge behead his father in his house in 1977. Then they enslaved Chun and sent him to clear minefields. But Chun escaped and found his way to America in 1982. He set up an accounting business in California and became an immigrant success story. I've been in America and enjoyed my freedom here. I see this country is uh, everybody living in prosperity. My family live in Long Beach, California, and I succeed in my career to be an accountant and my business. I, I can make money enough to survive and enjoy, you know, my life here. But even after the Khmer Rouge was gone, Chun remained haunted by what he left behind. Cambodia still have a lot of uh, violence and kill innocents and fraud relation, corruption. I feel like I have to do something to help my people out there. I cannot, I cannot close my eyes, see the tears crying out there for help every day. So in 2000, Chun, the California accountant, tried to overthrow Cambodia's government. The coup was ill-conceived. Seven people died, more than 100 were arrested, and Chun landed in a federal prison in Pennsylvania. Today he's serving a life sentence for conspiracy and engaging in a military expedition against a U.S. ally. Chun says he's a victim of the changing political climate in the U.S. after 9-11. I feel that this country, like my father, you know, so if father put me in jail, what can I do? This is a democracy country, and now he turned around because of political climate, they changed between a green light to red light, and he put me in jail. What can I do? <laughs> I'm just a small, small group and small 
person here, you know. Journalist Adam Piori has written about Yassi Chun in the digital publisher The Atavist. He says Chun lived the American dream in reverse. He was driving a Lexus and he had a nice suburban house. But survivor's guilt or, or just maybe he had built a business and he turned his attention back to his homeland and he decided to try and build a movement from the United States. What in his background do you think led him to try to bring down his government? You know, his father was politically active in support of the law and null regime, the U.S.-backed law and null regime. He was very anti-communist, and uh, he would go to protests um, in support of the American-backed law and null regime against uh, the Khmer Rouge when he was in high school and college. Eventually, after the Khmer Rouge came to power, some of the villagers told them that his father had been active and his father was beheaded. And um, he said, saw his father beheaded. And uh, it was a very traumatic experience. I think he was driven by the demons of his past to take, to take this action. And he may have been a little bit willfully blind. I was living in Cambodia in 1999, 2000, and it didn't seem particularly realistic during that period of time. The country had emerged from 30 years of civil war. People were very tired. And eventually, Yusit Chun discovered that he didn't have as many troops as he thought he had, that people had been misleading him. Briefly, if you would, just describe the failed coup attempt in 2000. So around uh, Thanksgiving in 2000, about 70 or 80, mostly poor Cambodian peasants charged the Ministry of Defense. Uh, the government had been tipped off ahead of time to their plans, and they were easily defeated and arrested. And in the days that followed, people were rounded up, and, and Chun fled back to the United States to try and do it again, I guess. Mm. I mean, a lot of lives were destroyed in this coup attempt. Seven people were killed, 12 were wounded, more than 100 were arrested. Do you think Chun knew what he was getting into? I think he hoped for the best, but I mean, I think he was to some extent naive and willfully blind. The prosecutors claim he was narcissistic, a classic narcissist like Bernie Madoff or something, and that he didn't care. I'm not sure that's true, but, you know, he had lived through a genocide and and he believed that war might bring casualties, I guess. The U.S. clearly needs the cooperation of countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, Was the prosecution of uh, Yasit Chun politically motivated, do you think? Well, that's what he's claiming in his appeal. And, uh, you know, from speaking with the FBI agents and uh, people involved in the prosecution, they insist that there was no political pressure. I do think the political climate changed. The Neutrality Act, which was one of the original things that that Chun was charged with violating, uh, had not been used to prosecute people for many years. There was two other groups that were former Southeast Asian anti-communists who were also sort of, for the first time, really gone after because I think there was political pressure to go after terrorism in general. So I I wouldn't say that, as you sit and his lawyer contend, I mean, that's up to the court to decide, but I don't have any direct evidence that his prosecution was politically motivated as a quid pro quo, although they point to a bunch of circumstantial evidence. But there definitely was a change in the political climate. And also he was prosecuted under a number of anti-terrorism laws that have been used since So that certainly came into play. That said, there was a a clear imperative for the United States to improve relations with Cambodia. And certainly when I talked to some of the FBI agents involved, their cooperation with the Cambodian authorities in the prosecution of Chun Yasit and the other people in the Cambodian freedom fighters led to new alliances, which allowed the agency to eventually open up an FBI office. They worked together. As one of the agents said, it helped develop a collegial-type atmosphere, whereas before there had been, well, just a lot of suspicion. Where does Yasit Chun's appeal stand right now? 
Uh, the last time I checked, they had filed the appeal, and they were waiting for a government response, which had been delayed several times. And so I don't know when the government is planning to file its response to the allegations that it was somehow politically motivated. Journalist Adam Piori has written about Yasit Chun in the digital publisher The Atavist. His article is called The Accidental Terrorist, a California Accountant's Coup d'État. For a link, go to theworld.org. Adam, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. place we're looking for in today's geoquiz should be easy to spot on a map of the Middle East. It's a large region of northern Israel. This region stretches out across parts of the Jordan Rift Valley and the plains of the Jezreel Valley all the way to the Mediterranean. Hiking trails abound, including one called the Jesus Trail. It links up several historical sites associated with biblical stories, including the miracle of loaves and fishes. Israeli farmers who till this region's coastal plains are dealing with a common challenge in an uncommon way. One big problem is mice chewing their way through wheat and contaminating crops. So many farmers have turned to raising barn owls to deal with the mice, and the region is now said to be home to the largest population of barn owls anywhere. So where is this happening in Israel? We'll have the answer in a moment. Now back to those mice. In the past, Jewish Israeli farmers got rid of the little critters with rodenticide, mouse poison, but now they're relying on barn owls. As a result, the use of rodenticide in the Galilee is way down and the population of barn owls is way up. And the Galilee is the answer to our geoquiz, by the way. Now, the owl solution is being tried on some Arab farms in the Galilee, but first they have to overcome deep suspicions about these birds of prey. Iris Mackler reports from the Galilee. Ornithologist Dr. Moti Charter puts a ladder up against a pole. At the top is one of the nesting boxes that he's installed throughout the fields here. The mother's not here, so you can actually climb up. We can put the microphone inside. Oh, great. Inside, five baby owls are making this extraordinary hissing sound, almost like a vacuum cleaner to scare off predators. When they grow, they'll be the predators. Each family of owls will eat between two and 6,000 mice a year. Dr. Charter is scientific coordinator of the project. The main concept of the project is decreasing pesticide use, mainly rodenticides, which rodenticides are pesticides specifically made to kill mammals. Rodents, but rodents are mammals. And we're also mammals, so they're by far the most dangerous uh, pesticides for us. Dr. Charter gets his equipment and brings the fledglings down from their box so he can weigh and measure them. 18.2 millimeters. That was his wing. So this guy can fly in another two days. When the project began more than 20 years ago, only one organic farm dared to try it. But it's slowly gone mainstream. Now Israel has more than 2,600 nesting boxes. There are fewer mice, less crop damage, and much, much less poison. One picture of his, uh, of his breast. 
all that doesn't help if your neighbours a few miles away are still using poisons. Dr Charter's village of Ramon backs right up against the barrier separating Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Many of our owls, what we call our owls, you know, because they breed here, you know, hunt over in the Palestinian Authority or vice versa. So it's very important for us that we also try to work with them together, in particularly here in such a small place. It's all the same. You know, the water system, the rivers. Now the project's being extended to Arab farmers in the Galilee. But they're reluctant because they're superstitious about owls. Khaled Fukara grows wheat and olives in the Natufa Valley in the Galilee. He says that when he was a boy, he was taught that owls bring bad luck. If an owl hooted, it meant someone would die. Involving the Arab farmers was the idea of Israeli Arab ornithologist Dr. Samech Darawshe. He knew he didn't stand a chance if he couldn't overcome these old superstitions. So he began reading up on Islamic religious sources. He learned that the Prophet Muhammad had spoken out in favour of owls and approached imams in the Galilee. I worked with imams and uh, some of them been speaking about the owls and the project in the, in the mosque and it, it started working. The Arab farmers meeting to paint the nesting boxes they've built. They say they even like owls now and hope the project succeeds. Local farmer Mashhur Murad. My hope now is that no one touches the nesting boxes, that the owls will stop the mice from destroying our crops, and that we'll eat clean vegetables and food. Back at his village, Dr. Charter's turning ammunition crates into nesting boxes. And this is a box that, you know, even though it's from an old ammunition crate, obviously the barn owls do not know that. <laughs> they, have, they have no idea, and they'll be more than happy to use this. So it's uh, mice without borders and owls without borders. Unfortunately, people with borders, but that's... Uh... For the world, this is Iris Mackler in the Galilee. We've got some great photos of the barn owls, including some fuzzy owlets. You can see the slideshow at theworld.org. Now, for you chess fans out there, Indian Grandmaster Viswanathan Anand managed to retain his title today at the World Chess Championship in Moscow. It was a squeaker, though. Anand's challenger was Boris Gelfand of Israel, and the two played a series of games where each player had successively less time to make their moves. After 12 games of one win each and 10 draws, Anand won a tiebreak today. Anand praised Gelfand for a tense match and said he felt more relieved than happy because he wasn't sure of his win until the very end. In all fairness, he said, this match simply could have gone either way. In victory, Anand said it came down to no more than stamina. I would say simply that uh, my nerves held out better. And, um, I mean, even these four games, there was so much back and forth going on. And, um, well, I simply hung on for dear life. Um, I won't claim more than that. The championship was held in Moscow for the first time since 1985. Anand's opponent, Boris Gelfand, emigrated from the former Soviet Republic of Belarus to Israel in 1998, and throughout the match he was treated like a local player. Though he lost, Gelfand said he endured the long contest by only focusing on how to win the next game. And that strategy seemed to work, at least until today. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media.
providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. So a Frenchman walks into a bar in London. And this isn't a joke. Lots of Frenchmen walk into lots of bars in London. That's because there's lots of French living in London. The French consulate there puts a number between 300,000 and 400,000. That's more than the population of Bordeaux, Nantes, or Strasbourg, which strangely makes London the sixth largest French city. There's always been French people living in London, but today's group has some defining characteristics. Many are there to stay. Hamid Seni is a business consultant based in London. Ten years ago, we were all young French kids thinking, yeah, we're learning English, getting a little bit of uh, work experience, maybe we go back to France. And now I see people married with kids and uh, settling here, buying houses, and that's it, we are immigrants. England is home. Seni has observed his fellow French in London for more than 10 years, and he says they've changed. They're much less boastful and less snotty. I remember we were speaking English in the workplace. We had to. And then outside, we would speak French, like, oh, we are French. We're different. We're more sophisticated because we're French. I don't see those people shouting anymore. I don't see those people showing off their Frenchness. Seni, like many French in London, is a son of North African immigrants. He said he had all the degrees and training he needed, but still couldn't get a job in France, so he left. He's found London to be a much more level playing field. Others have too. Malika Favre is an illustrator who came to London seven years ago. In France, if you don't have the experience per se or the diploma, then there's no one on earth you're going to get the job because, you know, it's less liberal. Over here, people will be much more likely to give you your chance. She says London is much less bureaucratic and there's a can-do attitude that just doesn't exist in France. I think people are much more optimistic about we can do things. If you want to do something, you can do it. Whereas when I was in Paris, when you want to do something, like a new venture or anything, you always think of what's going to go wrong. Sounds familiar. It's kind of like the American dream, if it were set in London and if you've got a French accent. Today's global hit takes us to the remote Faroe Islands. They're in the North Atlantic, roughly equidistant between Iceland, Scotland, and Norway. Not much in the way of crowds there. The tiny island country has fewer than 50,000 inhabitants. One of them is musician Taitur Lassen. The world's Carol Zoll has this profile. Singer-songwriter Taitur Lassen, whose stage name is simply Taitur, is a man who takes his music seriously. But when it comes to introducing himself... The vibe is casual. I mainly just use my name, Titor. So it's, you're like Prince. Yeah, I'm totally <laughs> like Prince. <laughs> that casual vibe is also evident on Titor's latest CD, Let the Dog Drive Home. Let the Dog Drive Home is just about letting go. And uh, it's kind of a quirky title, I know, but it just seemed to encapsulate what I wanted to say with this record, to make a collection of songs about letting things happen. When you don't know where you're going you know how to get there Even in your darkest hour There's a voice you hear 
letting go don't mean you don't care it's out of my control let the dog drive Maybe some of Taitor's laid-back sensibility comes from the Faroese sense of time. He says that in a place where the sun never sets all summer, it's easy to forget what time it is. I think that's what the Faroe Islands really possess, is time. You have abundance of time, and it's, it's such a luxury in this day and age. And if you're in big cities and in the Western world or anywhere, you just seem to have so much time when you're on the Faroes, which is a very good thing for creative people. That perspective on how people in big cities never have enough time is something Titor knows about firsthand. He lived in Los Angeles for a while, working as a songwriter for a publisher. That experience inspired the song You Never Leave L.A., which he says reflects the way that people say they hate Los Angeles, yet never seem to leave it. And then you realize there's also a a deep history there, of course, rooted in Hollywood and the entertainment, and there's all these people who are trying to make it. And there's also like a sadness about that. But for me, I just wanted to sing about the good part of L.A., the very thing that, that takes people there. I've retraced the steps of all the stars on the boulevard No one thinks about what it took to get that far Others who have tried While much of his songwriting is in English, Titer's first language is Faroese. Faroese is very different from English. It's an old Viking language. And as with many small language communities, says Titor, there's a struggle to invent new words to keep up with the modern world. Like I remember when I was younger there, there was a radio show with a guy called The Word Guy. And people would send him requests, things like, how do I say computer? I mean... We actually asked him once, when me and my band, we asked him how we could say single because we'd made a single. So he suggested the word stack flova, which means stack is a singular, a single edition, and then flova is a CD. Taitor does write songs in Faroese. One of his stack flovas is from a CD he released entirely in his native language. It's about the island's capital, Torshaun, and it's called Havnen Air and Little Bicht which means Torshaun is a very small town. The song is an ode to both the freedoms and the constraints of living in a small place. Torshaun is a little village, it says, my lighthouse in the middle of the sea. It's so confining here, goes another verse, but also so secure. I just want to forget that anything else exists. The words may be Faroese, but the small town could be anywhere. 
in the middle of a continent or the middle of an ocean. For The World, I'm Carol Zoll. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector, Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.